again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We're pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. We are taught this week by lead teacher Randy Pope. Thank you for joining us today. Let's pray as we begin, all right? Father in heaven, thank you for a, a great worship thus far, and we pray as we now turn our attention to your word, your revelation to us. We pray that we might not just have ears to hear, but we might have hearts open and willing to say, God, you, you speak. We want to hear from you right now. So bless this time and thank you for it, and we ask it in the great name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Now, would you agree that if there is a God and if there is a heaven, that the most important question that we could have answered is simply this, how does a person find favor with God and how do they find certainty of entrance into heaven at death? There could be nothing more important. You can ask that question throughout this world to people, whether they are religious, irreligious, non-religious, if they are theists, meaning they believe in God, you're going to find that the answer will almost universally include the word good or goodness in the answer. How do you get to heaven? Oh, you got to be good. How do you find favor with God? You got to be good. Now, the real question is this, is that accurate or is it not? Is the vast majority of humanity correct or is there another answer? And if there's another answer, how do we know? How do we find any confidence in whatever that answer might be? I think that you really do find the answers to those questions in what I'm going to call the Holy Week realities. Holy Week. You know, it begins Palm Sunday, last Sunday, and it runs through the day Easter. It's been known as Holy Week globally for centuries. The great week of the Christian faith, not of all faiths, but of the Christian faith. Reality. The word literally, it simply means existing as fact. Well, how do we know it's a reality? What are the realities? And what do we learn from this Holy Week? Now, there are two realities, and I'm going to put them under the categories of the Good Friday reality, number one, and number two, the Easter Sunday reality. Just remember those two. Good Friday, Easter Sunday. There's a reality tied to each that cannot be separated from each other, but when put together, I think really does give us great confidence to believe the correct answer to these questions. So let's look first of all at the Good Friday reality. We're gonna spend a lot more time on that one than we'll spend on the second, but equally important. Here is the Good Friday reality. You have it in your bulletins. I'll put it on the board here. Good is not good enough but goodness can be exchanged for righteousness. You hear that? I want to say this to our young people, our kids that are here, our youth. 
This one, you got to understand. I want you to listen carefully, carefully, because this is where it all comes together. You got to know this. Embedded in the biblical account of Good Friday, you find this reality. It's somewhat hidden. You don't necessarily see it at its initial reading. It's found in Matthew 27. If you have your Bibles, electronic or not, I encourage you, open up and look with me. As you're looking up, I'll, I'll start you in verse 4, 11 through 14. I won't read those verses, but it's a very familiar story. Many of you know about it. It's where Pilate, the governor of the region there where Jesus is to be crucified, he's a Roman. This guy, Pilate, has a conversation with Jesus after he has been arrested. And he says, okay, Jesus, I want to know, are you or are you not? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you rightly said it. He's saying, yeah, I am. Then he asks in different words. He says, hey, well, why are you not defending yourself? I mean, you're, you're having all these charges brought against you, and what do you have to say for yourself? And he remains totally silent. He didn't say a word. It's at that point that we pick up with the reading of God's word. In verse 15, and we'll go through 26, and this is how it's told. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, wow, what evil has he done? They kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Next text, if we continue reading in the 28th chapter, the rest of the chapter there and then into 28, you're going to see that he is then crucified. I could read the text to you and it would be accurate to detail. But I think that it might serve us well for me to maybe tell the story and to do it in such a way that maybe we kind of get a better grasp of what really did happen on that day. So in order to do that, I'm going to invite you, if you will, to pretend with me just for a few minutes. I want you to pretend with me that, that somehow in a miraculous way, I've come back to this modern day setting to you, the audience of the day. And my name will be Barabbas. And what I will do is I will tell you the story as I saw it 
from my perspective on that day so many years ago. If that were to happen, I think it would probably go maybe something like this. What a, what a privilege to be able to come and, and share this story with you. I really, I find it hard to even know how to tell the story. It's, as you can imagine, once you hear it, it's made an indelible impression upon, upon me forever. It was early morning. I, I would say I was awakened, but I really wasn't. I don't think I'd slept all night. If I dozed, maybe it was for a minute, but I was tired. But let me tell you, more than tired, I was scared. I was scared because this was the day set for my execution. I knew it would be in the morning time. Not sure what time, but I knew it was soon. And I could hear as I laid in my bed, I could hear the cry of a crowd that apparently was getting larger and larger by the hour in the early morning. And I could hear the cry, crucify him, crucify him, crucify well, I knew they wanted to crucify me. See, my name, Barabbas. Barabbas, I was notorious in my day. I'd done everything there was to do bad. You see, I'm a, I'm a zealot. A zealot, now, a lot of the zealots were religious people. I'm not so much religious. But we were all political. We hated the Romans. We existed for the sake of doing anything to the Roman people we could to hurt them. I had murdered. I had stolen I lied continuously, you name it, I had done it, and I had been arrested, I'd been found guilty as charged, and now I'd been sentenced to go to death by crucifixion, the way the Romans would do it. And I understood exactly what was my day. And so I laid there, and sure enough, once again, the the steps of centurions walked by, but this time they stopped, and I knew it was for me. They opened my cell, and they bound my hands, and they walked me out. As I came outside, they took me to the Praetorian courtyard area and, and walked me to the steps there that head out to Antonio's fortress, or head out of Antonio's fortress. And as my eyes were just adjusting to the brightness of the light, I, I see the first thing in front of me, this, this man, a, a big, strong-looking man. And let me tell you, they were letting him have it. I assumed I was next in line. Let me tell you, they were beating this guy. They were slapping him. They were spitting on him. They were calling him all kind of names. I mean, they just were letting him have it. It was about that time that there was a hush as the crowd was getting more into what they were doing to him, and the, and, and the crowd finally just hushed at one moment. I couldn't understand what had happened. I looked around, and sure enough, there in a little balcony protruding over the, over the courtyard was Pilate, the governor of our land. Everybody knew who Pilate was, and, and then Pilate spoke to the crowd, and he said, who do you want? I couldn't hear everything, but I knew he was asking who, and, and I heard the, the crowd in chorus. They said, Barabbas. Well, of course they want me. They want to hang me. They want to put me on that cross. They want to do everything. I know they want me. What surprise is that? And then the next thing that happened, I, 
Oh, my goodness. Pilate mumbled something, and they brought a basin of water. He washed his hands. I couldn't figure, what's he doing? And he mumbled something else. And about that time, the centurion next to me took off my chains. And he said, you're free, pal. Get out of here. I'm free. I'm free? And then it hit me. Again, I wasn't that religious. But I, I remembered enough of our Jewish laws that there was this little deal or something about how you took one person who was guilty and you freed him for the sake of, I don't know. It was all this religious stuff, and I wasn't into it, but it had something to do with the Passover, and I, I don't know. But apparently, they wanted this guy, Jesus, more than they wanted me. I had to find out about this guy, Jesus, and I, I'd go around trying to, but people would scurry as I would come. Nobody wanted to talk to me. I found a few, and I'd say, hey, what did Jesus do? Because, you see, I'd heard of Jesus, and everything I knew of him, oh, you know, people were gullible in our day, just like in yours, and people very religious, and they bought into a lot of this stuff that he did all these miracles and all. I mean, he was a magician of some sort, but, you know, I never heard of anything he did bad. In fact, everything I heard of him, he was very compassionate and cared about people in an extreme way. I couldn't figure, why are they, what are they doing to him? So I, I began to ask, well, what did he do? I've been in prison a long time. What did he do? And the worst thing that I could find was he deceived people. Deceived people, that's... That's on the lowest of the scale of the evil that I had been accustomed to living. What in the world? Deceive people? I'm confused. Well, about that time, they, they began to escort him. They took him to the middle of this, of this whole area where people were gathered, and they did this thing called scourging. Oh, gosh. They took a little instrument called a cat of nine tails, basically a a wooden handle, and it had little strips of leather that came out of it. Embedded in the leather were little pieces of sharp rock and, and even some metals of different types, but it, would, it was just horrible what they do. They would, they would whip you with it. Now, you people today, you think of whipping like a bull whip. No, no, this was like a big centurion would take the, the whip and would just literally sling it, and it would wrap around the body, and then he would take it with all of his might, and he would yank back. And when he did, it would take off strips of skin off the body. They did it 40 save one, 39 times because they found that the average person died at 40. I mean, he had had it, but he endured. It was amazing, so much so that he could still stand. This guy was strong. They put a cloak around him, and it was... It was a purple cloak like of royalty, and they were mocking him. Oh, they took a crown. Oh, yeah, you guys, you don't think crowns like, uh, you think of these, what do y'all have, rosebud, thorns, stuff like that? I, no, no, no. These things are like huge desert thorns, sharp as they can be, and they, they'd woven uh, just a, a crown-like thing, and they pressed it into his face so it cut into his skin, blood just pouring down his face. Then they blindfolded him. And they put a reed in it. Oh, you don't, you don't know what a reed is. Uh, a reed would be like a staff, but it was mocking him as if it were a scepter. And he held it like he was the king. And they, and they spat, spat on him. They, 
they, oh, it was sad what they were doing. They take the reed from his hand, they blindfold him, and they started popping him across the back and across the face, and they'd hit him any way they wanted to. And then they'd say, okay, you seem to know everything. King of the Jews, who hit you that time? And Oh, it was abusive. After all that, he was still standing. They took the crossbeam to the cross. They threw it over his shoulder and said, drag it up the hill. It's not a mountain, but it's a, a fairly good incline. It's a place called Golgotha. It was better known as the place of the skull because you could look at it from a distance and you could see the caves in the side. It looked kind of like a head of a skull, but basically that's because that's where people died. That's where they would execute, where everybody could watch. They loved it to be a public gathering. And people would gather to watch. And he began to carry that cross, but that thing was heavy, and he fell flat. They brought this man, I heard his name was Simon, don't know, but he came up, and you did what the Romans told you, and that guy picked it up, and he carried it up, and, and this Jesus, he somehow made it up the hill. Well, we got up there, and I had to follow, because I had to see what was happening. After all, this is what would have happened to me, and so I'm I'm anxiously watching, and we get up there, and there are two of my buddies, criminals like I was, not near as bad as I was. I was the extreme. They were the average, but they're up there dying because they've, they've been arrested. They've been caught, convicted, sentenced to die, and now it's their execution, and they lay them on the, on the cross, and they take these thongs, and they wrap the wrist and the feet on this little protruding piece of wood, and and then they began to raise it up. I bet you the holes for these crosses had to be two and a half feet deep to support them. And oh, you just watched and you knew as it began to slide, as it got high enough, man, oh man, that thing would boom, hit the bottom of that, of that hole and just literally take the breath out of you. Then they began with Jesus. But let me tell you, they did it differently. And they didn't use these thongs. They, they asked for spikes and the, they took these spikes. I mean, these are sharp spikes and a mallet and the centurion would take in the fleshy part of the, of the wrist there and they would just whack with one whack and it would go right through the arm. Oh, you could see the grimace on the face, the scream, the agony. Oh, they did it to his feet. They turned it sideways and right through the fleshy part. Couple of hits there to go through both feet. and Oh, I, I just couldn't imagine the pain. And then I think the most cruel thing of all, they began to raise that cross and I... I've brutally murdered people, but I, I couldn't even watch. I turned my head. As it slid, I knew what was about to happen. I do believe I could hear the flesh as it tore and the scream and the agony. The pain was beyond anything I could even imagine. They didn't even stop there. They came around the foot of the cross, and they're spitting at him. They're calling him names. And then all of a sudden, he, you have to kind of... Imagine, he had to raise himself up to get air enough in his lungs to even speak. And this is, he looks up in the heaven, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I said, what? You may be a good man, but you're a stupid man. If you're going to sit there and say, forgive, I don't know who you're talking to, your God or whoever, but I'll say this. If I'm up there, I'm spitting back. I'm certainly not saying, well, forgive them. I don't get that. And then one of the guys, one of my buddies, oh, he's letting him have it. I don't know what he had against Jesus, but he's just kind of going at him. And the other guy, oh, something changed about him. And he looked over at this guy, Jesus, while on the cross, and he said something like, hey, would you remember me or something like that? And this Jesus turned around and said, 
Today you'll be with me in paradise. Don't know. Don't get it. And then this rather large, strong guy, he, he walks up with a woman and comes to the foot of the cross and looks up and Jesus looked down at her and, oh, she couldn't handle it. And she just broke down. She had to leave. I, I heard it was his mother. And this guy was apparently one of his good buddies, John. And, and all he said as they were walking away, he said, woman, behold thy son. And son, behold thy mother. That was, that was a way that we would say, hey, take care of her as if she's your mom. Well, it, all of this took place, you know, around 9 o'clock, and it had been several hours now, and at 12 o'clock, I mean pitch black. Something happened. It wasn't just a little eclipse as we know it today in your time. Uh-uh. This thing was weird. I mean, something happened. I, I don't know what it was, but it got so dark, and it remained that way for three hours. At around 3 o'clock, something happened. It came light again. And as soon as it did, and everybody again looking up, and I mean, everybody was scared. We were freaked out at this darkness. And this Jesus looked out, and, and, and he cried up as if to the heavens. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you know what? There was a ring to it as if he were saying, I know why do these people understand he said something about being thirsty at the same time. Well, they were so anxious to find out, is he calling his God now? Is something going to happen? And so uh, they wanted to hear him enough, so they, they stuck into his face on a hyssop branch, a little spongy type thing, and it had some sour vinegar of all things. And then he, he simply said, it's finished. Now let me tell you, he was alive. It takes hours. You suffocate. You literally suffocate. That's how you die on a cross. It takes a good long time for that to happen. But, but I'm telling you, with that, he said, it's finished. And then he said, unto thy hands, I commend my spirit. And he died. I mean, it's like he chose to die, and he died. It's like he controlled the whole thing. They were so confused that with that, they took a spear, and they thrust it into his side. And because of what came out of the side... You could tell he was dead. He didn't flinch when that spear went in him. I mean, he was dead. And at that moment, oh my goodness, the ground began to shake. And I'm not talking about a mild tremor. I'm talking it began to shake like the whole world was shaking. And rocks began to break open. I'm talking about boulders would break open. We all hit the ground. We were so scared. We'd never seen anything like this. And then it stopped. And I'll never forget one of the centurions. He looked up and he said, truly, this was the Son of God. I don't know about that. But I do know this. All I could think about was that this man died in my place. That will forever stay with me. He died in my place. Well, there's the story. It's a real historical story. Every reason to believe it's accurate. Now, what do we learn from the story? It's kind of interesting that this guy Barabbas, I mean, it, 
it enters into apostolic history. It briefly enters in, in, uh, in the biblical record, and then it, I mean, it submerges into obscurity. You don't see it anymore. You don't know why in the world was it put there. I almost suggest to you that this brief vignette is there to show that each of us is a Barabbas in two ways. You have it in your outline. I'll put the first one up. Here's one way. Each of us, like Barabbas, has a moral debt that must be paid. Very important to know that. We each have a moral debt. You see, his name was Barabbas. Uh, it's an Aramaic word. Uh, Aramaic language was basically the Hebrew that had, uh, had been corrupted. And, and, and the word bar, son of, and then Abba, father. It literally, son of a father. Of all the people that could be represented for this story, God in his providence has a man named Barabbas. Barabbas, son of a father, a generic way of representing every person who's ever lived who is not the child of a father. Oh, maybe a distant father, maybe a deceased father, but I'll tell you this, we all have a father. And he represented all mankind in this vignette. His politics, he was a zealot. What did a zealot do? A zealot fought against the rule of the day, of the authorities. They would do whatever it took to, to have their own control. Sentenced to die after being found guilty. You know, the same is true of you and me. We've all broken God's law. He's our authority. Romans 3, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Every been, everybody been sentenced to death. Chapter 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. You know, Paul liked to describe this as if everyone had this certificate of debt. I like to think of it like a, a little placard around the, the neck hanging there that every person wears. It's invisible to us, but it's there. And it's a certificate of debt, and the debt is just climbing every moment that we have a bad thought. We say something we shouldn't have said. We, we, we have a, a wrong motive behind what we do. Uh, whatever it is, it's just going up and up and up and up and up. It's a certificate of debt. Colossians 2.14, here's how Paul describes it. When he's talking about it, he says it cancels out his work, the record of debt, which literally in some translations say certificate of debt, that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Very same way. Everybody has to account according to the Bible. Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed a man once to die and after this the judgment. So his, this little vignette, it's there in such a way to, to tell us something. You know the best of all people, they swallow this lie. The lie that, that you know, I can take my goodness and, and I, can, I can pay down that moral debt. The more goodness, the less debt. That's the lie, a greatest lie perpetrated on man. It really is. And the best of people fall for it. And by the way, don't think that, yeah, people who are outside the Christian faith, they fall for it. Let me tell you, Christian, we, we're all guilty of this. We still buy into it, do we not? I can ask most any Christian group, what happens to a little 12-year-old, a little girl in North Africa who's killed in a car wreck? And she's the sweetest, kindest, most precious little thing you've ever met. She just cares about people. She serves. She loves. She smiles. She's just good. Hey, what happens to her when she dies? Because she 
wakes up every morning praying to Allah and throughout the day calls the name of Allah. And the Christian community will go, well, ooh, I don't know, because she's good. And we live that way to think, oh, we just buy, you know, even if we buy into it this way, hey, I at least have a little goodness. I have the goodness of my faith, and I have the goodness of my repentance, and I bring it to God, and he brings the cross, and golly. So, God, you are rewarding me for my goodness. Folks, it's not true. Because good is not good enough. It is not. Apostle Paul, he fell for it. He tells his own story in Philippians 3, and he says, hey, you know, religious family, I had it. I mean, a pedigree that is uncomparable. Are you talking about somebody with religious zeal, unparalleled? No one had the zeal I had. And you're talking about moral goodness? He even made this statement. He says, as to the law, found blameless. That's pretty impressive. So he bought into it. He thought, that's, that's good enough. And then he grasped the second great truth that comes out of this Good Friday story. And I'll put it up, number two. Each of us, like Brabus, can have the cross of Christ cancel our moral debt. We can. See, for Brabus, it was temporal. I understand that. But you see, he, had, he escaped the death penalty because of the death of Jesus. Well, the same is true for you and me morally in a religious way, in an eternal way. The truth of it is that we escape death because of the death that Jesus. I mean, he literally dies in our place. But here's the great difference here than Barabbas. Oh, he was, he was freed. But we are given at the moment that that certificate is dealt with, we are given Christ's righteousness. It'd be like this. It'd be like Jesus as he's carrying his crossbeam and he's dragging it. And all of a sudden, he looks and he says, hey, Josh, Josh, come here a minute. Come here, come here, come here. And he comes and says, what, what, what is it? Uh, Give me that certificate. What? Oh, I never know. Oh, here you go. And Jesus turns around and he says, he says, can I, uh, Centurion, can I have your mallet there for just a minute? And Can I have one of those spikes? And he lays it on the cross and he goes, whack! And he puts it right there. And he says, I've got it. By the way, you're going to find out that you have just received my full righteousness. Go and live in peace. Hey, Wyatt, come here just a minute. Come here. Can I have that certificate? Whack. Hey, taken care of, brother. Lindy, whack, taken care of. Barrett, taken care of, whack. Just, there you go. That's all it takes. Just take my righteousness and I'll go to the cross. And when I die, I'll take care of that certificate. That's the way it works. Paul finally got it. In Philippians 3, verse 7, he tells a story. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, all those things, I've counted them as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and listen to this, and count them but rubbish, wrong word, dung, not enough, 
if I use the word that that is comparable to, it is the most vulgar word in the Greek language, I would get letter after letter of some of you kids' parents. <laughs> and they would say, you shouldn't use that word that Paul used, but he used it for a reason, not to be vulgar, but to make the point there is no worse term. I count it but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, being good, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He says it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Then he says, Peter, he got it right in 1 Peter 2, 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin. And then it says, to live to righteousness. You see, good is not good enough. But goodness can be exchanged for righteousness. You don't add the righteousness, you exchange it and say, no. It does nothing to pay off my debt. So let's quickly kind of end this up because there is a second reality. It's why we're here today. It's the, it's the Easter Sunday reality. And that Easter Sunday reality says this, goodness could never become righteousness unless Jesus rose from the dead. It's Matthew 28, 1 through 6. It goes like this. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became dead like men, like dead men. The angel said to the, the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. So Paul, he writes to the people at Corinth in chapter 15 of his first epistle, and he says this. He says, if there is no resurrection, then let me tell you, this stuff, don't buy it. In fact, he says these three things. I'll put them up. Number one, that our life purpose, our life purpose would be invalid. Oh, we talk about Christians. Yeah, we do, don't we? Hey, I got a purpose for living now. I can wake up in the morning and say, I get to serve my God, and one day I'm going to live with him forever. Yes, I got a purpose like nobody else has. Really? If there's no resurrection, then it's invalid. You're just talking. Or number two, he says our spiritual freedom would be imagined. Oh, since I came to faith, what a new life, new quality of life. Let me tell you what God's done to me. Let me tell you how he's changed me. Let me tell you, if there's no resurrection, then that stuff we're talking about, no, it's just imagined. He makes it real clear. And then thirdly, he says it this way. He says, our eternal assurance would be impossible. Yeah, we talk about, I'm going to go to heaven, and you know what? We have our loved ones die who are following Christ, and, and we say, at least I have this kind of hope, and it is such a hope because I know I'm going to see him again one day, and we're going to be together. Oh, come on. It's not real unless there is a resurrection. It's impossible. All I need to say is this. Let me tell you, if, if one of my children die, or one of my grandchildren dies, and they're Jesus followers, I only want to ask one question. 
Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? And if I'm convinced he did, I'm okay. Oh, I'm going to hurt. I'm okay. But if I have to say, no, there's no resurrection, I'm least to be pitied. There is no hope. Let me tell you, the good news is, the good news is, there are two realities. Good is not good enough. But goodness, it really can be exchanged for righteousness. And let me tell you, the resurrection, there's adequate proof. The reason people don't buy it is because they don't want to believe it. Carol and I just went to see the movie A Case for Christ, the story of Lee Strobel. Great, great story of his life. Here he was, an investigative reporter who did not want to believe it, didn't believe it, hated the whole thought of Christianity and set out to prove it wrong. And he saw the facts and he said, the facts are there. It's a reality. If there's a resurrection, then there is a righteousness that can be given to man. Parents, would you please make sure that your children grow up knowing these two realities, understanding the realities? It will be the foundation for good life. Make sure they get it. So what do we say now in closing? Christian, here's what I'd say to the Christian in light of all this. You and I need to repent of our goodness because we, we know we repent of our bad stuff, all the, the things we shouldn't, and we got plenty of that that we have to repent of, but we better add to the collection our goodness and say, God, I'm sorry. I've been holding my goodness up to say this is why you should be good to me. This is why I should expect nothing but kind, good experiences of life. This is why, because I'm a good person, and you, you owe this to me. You know you do. And we need to repent and say, God, you owe me nothing, and you've given me everything. To the seeker, you that are seeking answers to the faith, uh, my, my advice is not going to be go pray a prayer. I'm not going to say, pray this prayer with me. There's nothing wrong with that. But let me tell you, I know what's going to happen the next week, and you're going to go, I don't know what happened. I had a little religious bump. Didn't do anything for me, but you know. Now, what I'd say to you is investigate. Investigate. Find out what are the answers to my tough questions. Our Father in heaven, thank you on this Easter that we get to rethink the, the Good Friday story and the Easter story and to know these realities are something that are worth checking out or for many of us already to embrace with deeper, deeper conviction. And we want to say thank you. Thank you for sending your son to die that horrible death that we might have that certificate of debt dealt with on the cross. I pray, Father, that we might lean on the righteousness that you have offered to us and given to many of us here that we would that we would embrace strongly that righteousness and that we would count that our hope and not our goodness, not our faith, not our repentance. So forgive us where we have used our goodness in a wrong way. And thank you for the goodness that comes out of a real righteousness that causes us to be totally different and better people, but nothing accounting for our righteousness. And so, Father, I pray that this might be the 
the launch pad for many of us to pursue the things of you. And this time next year, we might be back here as Christ followers. So bless this time. Thank you for it. And we pray in the great name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.